Welcome to episode 337 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasts. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I'm really enjoying just hanging out in the Torah with you, especially looking at these 10 words, the instruction for worship and for life. It's already been great, and there's so much more to come. I know. I know. There's there's precisely seven more to come. But these are, uh, yeah, who's counting except the, the Bible? Uh, there's there's always more to talk about when we're talking about righteousness and how God That's true. commands us and teaches us to be holy. And I think uh, this is an area of most of our lives. And I'll I'll preach to the choir, as it were. And I guess I'm I guess I'm the choir and the preacher. I, I don't really understand how that metaphor works, but um, I think this is an area of most of our lives where we would do well to spend more time pondering and thinking about the law. There, there's no coincidence that the longest chapter, the longest psalm, the, lo- the longest, you know, discrete unit of Israel's worship is basically an an ode or a hymn to God for the beauty and glory of his law. So I'm super excited to keep going through this series. I think we have a really, really good topic today, a really interesting topic. Yeah, um, for sure. You so, and I actually started talking about it after the last episode, after we turned off great. the microphones. And we, we, if we had time, I think we probably would have just turned the microphones back on because it it was such an organic connection to what we were talking about last week. I think it, it really works out well. So I'm really, really stoked about it. Which of course is a testimony, no pun intended, to the real beauty of God's law, right. that there is a flow, there's a continuity, and that each one is at least logically kind of sequential and consequential in that it leads you to the next one. And so as we kind of build upon them, in other words, like it's not, of course, some kind of accident that God delivered them to Moses, these 10 words in this particular order. Right. Was just shuffled them or made them random. And so like, they're all equally important. They are, but they are all equally cumulative. Yeah. So this is like, it just made sense. And we, we just started talking about that. And we're going to really get into what it means when we try to honor God in the third commandment, both positively and negatively. But before we do that, let's just rock out some affirmations and denials. We can't forget about that. Let me start with a really quick affirmation. I've just been on this kick. I realized a, a bunch of like back to back to back affirmations of the kind of interwebs variety. And this is just one more to stick in your back pocket. I'm affirming with a website called artv.com. That's the word art and then vee.com. It's just a really super slick website where you can browse and download high resolution copies of classical and modern art that's all public domain. Nice. So it's free. You can do whatever you want with it. I found myself recently, I wish I appreciated art a little bit more, to be honest. And since I found this, this is a fun way to browse and search and look at stuff. And of course, if you want to do something with it, make it a background, put it on your phone, you can because it's all in the public domain. So it's kind of like your own little museum that you don't have to feel guilty about however you want to use the images. Even I suppose you want to print them out, make your own prints, you can absolutely do that. So here's a way just to kind of get exposed to some more interesting art. And because it is public domain, I just found that there's like so much stuff out there that's just super interesting that you yeah. you never find otherwise because some, and I've been thinking a lot, like somebody took so much effort to create these and some of them are really remarkably beautiful. And I'm thinking about the process and the talent and God's majesty demonstrated and the ability of human beings to create just exceptional representations of the world in some kind of medium. 
It's really remarkable. So artvartvee.com is just kind of a little cool website for you to spend five or 10 minutes when you have it in your day. I'm highly affirming. Nice. So um, my wife and I, as as you know, uh, met when we were graduate students at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. And um, there is a fine arts museum in Boston. I, I am, I'm also not really like a huge art person. It's just not, not my normal jam. My brain, I mean, we've talked about like visual, my brain isn't really that visual. I even have a tough time imagining things visually. So it's not a huge thing for me, but I will tell you what, if you ever have a chance to go to a fine arts museum, you should definitely go. I don't remember how we ended up getting to go for free, but it can be quite expensive, but that's because it, it takes a tremendous amount of money to maintain these kinds of paintings. Like there's right. special requirements and you have to have staff that can very quickly repair any damage and can, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, but some of these paintings are like multiple stories tall painted in the Renaissance and they're just like vibrant and beautiful and photorealistic at times. And you're like, how did you, how did you even do that? 1700 years ago, I can barely draw a stick figure. And these, you know, these people were drawing these amazing works of art. So this website's cool. I'm excited to look at it. Um, I would assume we should put a big fat two CV warning on it just because of the nature of classical art. So viewer beware, I guess, but, um, yeah, it, it looks pretty sweet. I'll have to check this out. Yeah. It's definitely worth a little bit of peek. It's not too bad with respect to the two CV thing. I found that actually there's not that much present there. But there's a lot that's just super interesting. And of course, it's what they consider classical could also be art in the 20s and the 40s. So you're getting lots of interesting prints. But it's, again, I just love that for for all these things, like somebody took the time to conceive of these ideas. And and sometimes you look at and think, like I'm looking right now at some art that is, I think it's like a, a, it's called Hawther, 1833 to 1872. Fritz Thompson, he's Danish. It's a, a almost photorealistic kind of stylized image. It's a painting of um, a dude taking like a horse out of a barn. And again, like it's beautiful, but this guy was like, this is what I need to paint. And yeah. I, I'm often trying to think, what's the story behind this? What was the genesis of this idea and the creativity that came to bear on this particular work of art? So it's really just cool to just think about people creating these things. So yeah. just another way in some ways to worship God and his wonderful creativity and the passion he gives us to express ourselves and ultimately him. This one that I'm looking at is called a pug dog and it is from 1802. And it's interesting because we would not recognize this dog as a pug. Not, and it's not like a, you know, it's not like a Picasso. That's all weird and like, like jacked up. It's just pugs have changed that much in the last 200 years. Um, I've actually seen like, uh, scientific drawings of pugs from that time frame, and this is actually pretty close. So, yeah, this is a cool site. I, you you are on top of the the internet stuff lately. I don't know if maybe I just don't have time to find this stuff anymore. But you've been way ahead of the curve on this stuff. Uh, can I just return to the scientific drawings of pugs that you've somehow come across? I saw an article one time that was like it was like a comparison on dog breeds between now and you know two hundred years ago, hundred years ago. Um, I probably found it looking for stuff for Westies. Um, like Westies used to be bigger. They they used to be bigger, which makes sense. If you, you know, the history of Westies, they, they started off as kind of a subbreed of Scottish terriers and Scotties are bigger and bulkier. So Westies have been bred down to be cute, but so there was a, it was a, uh, one of those like list articles of like 10, 10 dogs that you, you know, you could see today and how different they are. Um, I also read an article about pugs and how their current body structure is really, really unhealthy. 
and there's a there's actually a movement in um breeding like pug breeding to breed some of the unhealthy traits out of them and try to return them closer to their original uh like original form i guess so you see pictures in there of like they used to have more like regular dog snouts instead of this like super compressed stump of a dog nose so yeah stump of a dog nose stump of a dog that sounds like a good name for a beer yeah this actually does sound like a great dog stump nose Yes, this is this is the kind of like turn of phrase that people come to us for. You can't get stump of a dog nose on like any other podcast. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Speaking of which, it's all go for your affirmation. So I uh, I found out about an interesting thing that exists in New Hampshire. I can't confirm okay. that it exists in other states, but I would imagine it probably does. It's not new, and I should have known about it a long time ago. I just found out today that you can actually text nine one one in the state of New Hampshire. And it is essentially the same as calling 911. So they, they will dispatch an officer just like they would if you call. They have um, they use an application that queries the location of your cell phone so they know where to find you. Um, they said it's, it's particularly helpful, which is good in our area because there's lots of areas with spotty cell phone service. If you have uh, limited cell phone service where you could get a text message out, but a phone call might not actually go through, or it might be really difficult to talk. You can text nine one one, and they will they'll respond back just like they would on the phone. So if if they need information, they can ask you, but they'll dispatch an officer to your location. I found out about this because we there's a little local uh, private school actually just down the road from us, and one of the parents. Um, we're not going to talk about this today, but it, it's understandable why everybody's on a little bit higher alert right now with this. One of the parents saw an email or a text message one of the kids got that they were concerned about, texted 911 to ask a question about it and didn't realize that that would dispatch officers. So the whole school got sent on lockdown. There was state police and helicopters and all sorts of stuff. But um, because of that, I found out I could text 911 if I needed to. So I'm sure most states, most states probably have something similar and I just didn't. I don't know why I never thought about it, but it's great. It's great. That's my affirmation. It's a great service. It's good. It's safe. You fall down a cliff and you can't you can't get your phone to talk, but you got your Apple Watch or whatever. It's similar kinds of technology to like the fall detection and Apple Watch is going to send an alert to uh, through 911 through the same kind of process. So, yeah, right. That's great. I like that. It's a little bit on the margin for us, like that kind of affirmation, just more, I guess, in the sense that it's another way to be grateful for the place in which we live. And often there are these amazing public services that are available to us especially with helping us to be protected and to be safe. And that's a great blessing. I mean, again, what a time to be alive. What a time to live in a particular part of the world where you have these resources at your hands. It is, you know, it's kind of thing like you don't need it until you need it. And then you're really grateful that it's just there. You just take a rent. It's just there. You can just call somebody and get help and have somebody come right away. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. The other example they used was like a domestic um, abuse kind of a scenario where, um, just being honest, like a woman is being abused by her husband and it's not safe for her to make a phone call and tell someone over the phone that she needs help, but she could send a text message saying my husband is abusing me or whatever. A kid could say that about the parents, whatever the scenario is, some, some situation where it's not safe. Like if you were being, if you were, you know, being followed in a parking lot by someone suspicious and you, you thought that if you took out your phone and made a right. phone call, they might escalate. Um, you could text 911 and, and say I'm being followed by someone suspicious and they would be able to dispatch an officer. So it's a great service. Uh, what a time to be alive. I think that's awesome. 
Um, yeah, but it's just another tool. I mean, let's be honest. Like we, we live in a dangerous world and, um, I wasn't, we're not going to talk a lot about it, but this is obviously, we're obviously coming off the heels of this shooting at Covenant Christian School in Nashville. And, um, you know, one of the things they say in active shooter trainings, which if you are part of an organization that doesn't do active shooter training, you really should. Um, they say like, you need to be silent because a shooter is, is if they're going past a room and they don't hear anything, they may not go into that room to see if there's people in there. So it may not be safe for you to make a phone call to 911, um, but it would be safer to make a text, to send a text message um, describing your location, describing what's going on. So be aware, be, be safe out there. This is just another way if your state has access to it to, to help keep you safe. Um, and I know that there have been times that I've had to call 911 where the, the dispatcher asks you where you are. And it's actually almost kind of flustering because you don't expect to have to like answer that question right away. Because when we were being raised, like when you called 911 from your, your cell, your land phone, they just knew where you were and right. they didn't ask you, but now like they have to route you to the right dispatch center, um, so if you had to, this would might actually even be faster to get an officer out to your location than trying to place a phone call would. Right. Yeah, you're right on. It's again, it's a wonderful thing to have. And I remember a couple of years ago, my own organization, we were doing an active shooter drill and they did, our team did such a fantastic job at making it realistic. It was almost too realistic. It was a very emotionally taxing day, as, as you might imagine. And they're creating a scenario and they had video and even they'd created faux phone calls to really heighten the realism of what you might expect should this occur. And even to that thing where there were people, of course, that uh, either succumbed to injury in the course of this or were removed from the simulation so that you need to make decisions and you didn't have the right leaders in play at the time, all of kind of the chaos and you were trying to be responsible for the people that were underneath you to make sure that they were safe. And they're creating this whole big scenario. And this is my first time being part of something like this at this particular organization. And they got to like the story that was evolving of like the shooter coming to the building and somebody having to take them down. And it just turns out like, as they were saying this, they were telling a story and I was the one that took them down. And so then <laughs> what, what happened is, because I mean, they're so realistic, you know, people are saying like, what did you do? How to go? Like what, what was going on? I was like, I don't know. I just found out myself right this second that <laughs> I was the one that happened to tackle this person. But I, I certainly attest with you it just again, of course, it's not that the world has become more scary. It's just that there's always the heart of man is so deceptively wicked. And we just have to be more and more aware of ourselves and our surroundings. And so having these tools like 911, ability to text is just a great blessing. So I appreciate you bringing this up. I think I would say maybe the call to arms here or the call to action, no pun intended, is that our brothers and sisters throughout the world would find and double check ways in which they can access these kind of emergency services wherever you're at. It's good just to have it, again, no pun intended, in your back pocket. So because you never know when you'll come across a situation where somebody will need help or you yourself will need help. So it's called to be aware of all the services that you can access in your own environment. Go do that thing. Right? Yeah. I, I think the most common scenario this would be useful is if you, I don't know if you've been in this situation, there's been times that I've rolled up on a pretty serious car accident yeah, and sure. I was by myself. And so it's kind of like, do I, do I get on the phone with right. 911 or do I pull over and go to the car and see if anybody is having a, you know, having an emergency or needs, needs immediate first aid in the scenario like this, you could simply shoot a text message. I, you have my permission to use my location. I just rolled up on a serious car accident. I, we need an ambulance and an, like you could do that very quickly before you were to go over to the vehicle or to do what you needed to do to apply first aid or CPR or whatever it might be. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Again, just be aware. It's, it's good for us to do that. There's no harm 
in doing that. In some ways, you might argue it's appreciating, again, the blessing of where God has placed us in life geographically and otherwise that we might avail ourselves of those kinds of great, great services. So let's do some denying. So I'm going to give the denial and then I will just have you tell me what I'm referencing. Okay. Are you down with that? I love when you pick it like you create a new game. It's just my yeah. favorite. Okay. That's great. I actually, that almost sounds sarcastic, but I'm assuming. That. No, I I love it. It's like a, I, it's like I, 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 I have to be on my toes all the time. Okay. Got you. Okay. So here it is. I'm denying against what a well-intentioned person recently called the Christian Super Bowl. Tell me what I'm denying against. I'm assuming it's Easter. <laughs> My brother, you got it. Yes. So I'm, and not, of course, not Easter writ large, not even like Easter celebrations, just this again, this is kind of the annual denial of like loved ones. Like to go back to Martin Luther, like every Lord's Day is Easter Sunday. Yeah. So again, just this outsized, like, again, it's almost like hyperbolic language. It's somehow elevating one Lord's day above the rest, especially when the Lord himself has not made that elevation. Yeah. He's really given us all Lord's days to be properly elevated and we're going to get there like next week. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to talk about this again. It's coming. You can see like this accumulation of the 10 words and we're getting to heart worship and worship with the mouth and then worship with presence and corporates and it's, it's all coming. Yeah. And so it, it's just a reminder because I know we're about to, this episode will drop close to Easter Sunday. And again, I have like, I'm pro Easter, pro resurrection, pro like celebrating the life that we have being hidden in Christ, who's justified in his resurrection and stands before the father in his ascension now as fully validated before God, the father. And therefore, our first brother who hands that to us in his great graciousness. I'm just denying against this unnecessary elevation or classification of this holiday, which we do manufacture, at least elevate above the rest. I guess in some ways, let me flip it again, just one more time. And then I'm saying, can we just impound, import, bring in that excitement we have on this Sunday for all of them? Yeah. Maybe that's more like where I'm going with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, there, I don't think there's anything to add to that until we get to this topic next week. I think what what you're seeing, dear listener, is that uh, the th second, third, and fourth commandment are really just applying the first commandment to specific elements. Of course. So last week we applied the fact that God is Lord and God is sovereign to the sort of outward expression of worship. And what what that looks like this week, we're going to apply the fact that God is sovereign and Lord uh, to how we talk about God and how we think about God and how we uh, how we reflect God in our outward communication. And then, of course, next week, we're applying that same exact principle to how it is that we spend our time and what it is that we do with our right. time when we engage in worship. So uh, this in some ways, this is the same episode three threefold. But that's only because that's how God treats it in his law. Um, so we'll, I won't belabor that point anymore because I'm sure we'll come back to it today and I'm sure we'll come back to it uh, next week. But I think that's a really good, a good jumping off point. And that's the beauty of God's law, isn't it? That it's, it, in some ways, it's not new things all the time. Instead, it's one central thing around which we find beautiful application that frees us, that gives us the liberty to participate in worship that we know honors him. 
but also saves us from like a million lesser types of worship or just distractors that would pull us away from that, which is going to please God, be good for us and usher us into this abundant life that will just continue once we leave this earth and then move into seeing, you know, having that beautific vision and being with God. So I just think that this is, and I want to be clear, like I'm not denying against certainly anybody who's expressed this idea of like the Christian Super Bowl. We all understand what's meant by that, right? That the resurrection is so fundamental to our faith. It is like the, the principle upon which we understand that we are justified before God and that we ought to celebrate the God man for his great life, his death and his resurrection and his current ministry, by the way. But we need not do that in such a way that we almost exclude all the other Lord's days as somehow less like less special or less weighty, if yeah. that makes sense. And so this is really just saying, let's make every Lord's Day Easter Sunday in a sense. And that's outside of the things you and I have talked about before with sometimes we can just get a little bit carried away in the orchestration of worship on that morning in such a way that, again, it seems like all the other Lord's Days pale in comparison. That's problematic in its own way. Yeah. But this is, I think, more of a kind of closeted affirmation of let's make every Sunday, Easter Sunday, like cut to Martin Luther, who's like, I already said that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so question, clarifying question. Go ahead. Was this a Christian who said this or was this a non-Christian who said this? It's a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I hear this kind of sentiment sometimes from non-Christians um, and they're, they're, they're reacting to, you know, just honestly, like some parts of the church, this is like a more important day than this is a more important Sunday than others in the view of, I would even say most of the church, right? I, I think if we're being honest, the reformed, the reformed understanding of the, the, regulative principle of worship and how it applies to holy days and special celebrations. I think it's the minority position in the, the history of the church, maybe not the earliest history of the church, but it's the minority position now for sure. Right. And um, I think what this, this does when Christians use this language is it communicates exactly what you're concerned about to non-Christians. It gives yeah. this idea that like this day, this Sunday is somehow more significant than others. And exactly. and the reason that that comparison is apt is because yeah, like if you miss one you miss one game that your team is playing, like it's not a big deal, but if your team goes to the Super Bowl, like you better watch that game. Like you better you're going to have a party. Most people don't have parties and spend hundreds of dollars on cold cuts and barbecue chicken wings and stuff for every football game that their team plays in during the year, but they might for the Super Bowl. So I think it gives this impression that like th that Sunday, not only is it more important, but it needs to be like a spectacle. It should be entertaining. Um, somehow it's not for people who ordinarily go to church. It's got to be for, you know, just like they do things at the Super Bowl to appeal to people who don't ordinarily watch football. There are people that will watch the Super Bowl that don't ordinarily watch football, just as there are people that will go to church on exactly. Easter Sunday that don't ordinarily go. So it imparts all of these things to it. Unfortunately, it's actually kind of an apt comparison for a lot of the church, right? Yeah, exactly. That's so, right. it's not a bad comparison. Just it's the it's a good comparison about a bad thing, right? Yeah, basically. it actually illustrates exactly what it means to illustrate, and that is in fact the problem. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so I, and I don't want to belabor this again, like totally pro Easter, but I think that the older I get, and I don't want to be that guy. I'm going to be clear about this. Like some people are like, oh my goodness, here's Jesse. Like just being that guy too particular. I'm honestly not trying to be that guy. Yeah. What I am feeling increased conviction about in my own life, and I'll just return to your preaching to the choir scenario, is that as we look at the 10 words in this whole series, as I understand like my responsibility before God, I am somehow 
I, I hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, having this increasing conviction and passion for worshiping the Lord rightly yeah. in the way that he's prescribed and set forth, not just because he's ruler of the universe and he gets to decide, and that would be true in its own, but because it is what's best for me. And so like, I'm really more and more concerned with not trying to import some kind of legalism into what I'm doing, but merely trying to understand the Bible does have requirements. And we just need to lean into that, understand that that's legitimate for God yeah. to have requirements for us. And that those requirements are also born out of good and necessary consequence of what he's saying. In other words, I think God gives us beautiful minds, not like the movie, that was weird, but like minds that can engage, that are rational, that are logical, that can process, as Paul says. And so we ought to like lean into trying to sit back and understand what these 10 words mean. And so it's not just enough to say like, well, it's clear, right? God says, don't do this, do this thing. What he's also asking us is to do, I think, is to meditate, as, as the psalmist says, on the law. And in that meditation, I think we draw out the good and necessary consequences by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm just trying to get after that thing. And so like this idea of, again, the Lord's Day and what we say with our mouths, to me, it's all like in the same stream. But I really, if I could be passionate about one thing these days, I, I'm thinking I want that to be about worshiping yeah. properly. Yeah. And so I think that comes probably leads us to your denial, as I understand it. Yes. Yeah. This week, the listeners probably like, wait a second. These denials seem like they're related to the episode. They are. That was a very Brian Regan way to say that joke. Uh, so I'm not going to say the person's name. Uh, they run in very, very typical Facebook online circles. So if you are a part of the reformed Facebook sphere, you probably have seen this today. It's not someone super famous. This isn't James White or, or like a, a national celebrity kind of person, but it's someone that you probably have seen around if you're if you're in those groups. We're recording this on April 1st, which is, of course, April Fool's Day. So all sorts of people are posting jokes and things online. And this one uh, is particularly misguided. Uh, and I think it's a little, maybe a little bit of a jab at churches that uh, canceled their service on Christmas Sunday on, on December 25th this past year. But it says here, quote, an announcement from the session of this church. Tomorrow is Palm Sunday, a day in which the church has traditionally remembered the Lord riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This monumental day begins with what is often called Holy Week. The word holy means to be set apart. We want everyone to set apart, be set apart from each other during that time. Therefore, you, we are canceling the service tomorrow morning so you can celebrate at home with your family. What a better way to remember this event than to cancel church. End quote. So... The reason that this transitions into our topic uh, is that this is actually a pretty obvious example of the third commandment violation that were one of the ways that you can, I think, unknowingly and probably somewhat innocently, as innocent as sin could ever be, but but somewhat well-intentionedly, if that's a thing, uh, actually break this commandment is to make light things that should not be make, made light or to to make the things about God to be the, the punchline of a joke. Right. Uh, that's one of the ways that you can just just straight up violate this. Um, this is also from a guy who is very, very, uh, I would say is even further past where you and I are in terms of the regulative principle. So I'm sure that the people from his church see this and realize how much of a joke it is. Cause I would not be surprised if they don't even do like, if they don't even acknowledge that it's Palm Sunday tomorrow during the service, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if this was literally exactly the same as any other Sunday and they didn't do anything that had a theme related to Palm Sunday or the, the passages, you know, the, the passages that are typically preached. But this is just a really like, 
unwise joke to play apart from like the third commandment violation issues, which I think, you know, we can, people can debate about exactly where that line is. I'm not opposed to jokes and humor. I, I like jokes. I like humor, but uh, this is just an unwise thing because it communicates to people who might be observing uh, either Christians or non-Christians communicates that we think that the Lord's day worship service is something to be made a joke of. Um, that it's okay for us to make a joke of it. It communicates a sort of sense of casualness around the things of the Lord that I just I just think, regardless of where you land on how the third commandment is to be applied to this situation, it's just unwise. It's just, it's kind of like that that article I wrote about the second commandment of like, let's let's pretend that the reformed are wrong about this, about this being a sin. Is it is it a smart idea though? This is one of those things where like, it's probably a bad idea. Just, just in general, it's a bad idea to pretend that the Lord's day is not a big deal by making it the butt of a joke. So I wanted to share that it transitions beautifully into our topic. Usually you're the one that comes with a really clever denial that transitions us into our topic. And you did today too. So uh, you're just one up in me all around, but listen, no, we're, we're totally, we are totally on it because the location of the third commandment, it really indicates its connection to the worship of God. That's something you've already really lovely in such a lovely way set us up for honoring his name includes things that we talked about before adoration of his greatness, acceptance of his lordship, acquiescence of his providence and anticipation of his purposes. It involves using, of course, like our tongues in such a way that God is glorified. And this, by the way, to me is like a slight transition. And again, it's this same amazing curve, this narrative arc that God has us on with the 10 words. But in terms of the first two, there's something there that's not as outwardly demonstrative. So we did talk about idols, but we also were very clear that, for instance, in the Western world, it's as if we have less idols than other countries where they set up actual, like, explicit, discrete images that ourselves, we can have or give hegemony in our hearts or in our spirits to something which has priority over God. And the thing about that is it could go, in, you know, totally invisible. It's something that nobody else is going to perceive except for God himself. But we're crossing over in such a way that we're now saying, how do our tongues glorify or fail to glorify God? It's essential that our correct words are the expression of a true heart and a dedicated lifestyle. I mean, we can cut to Jesus himself, who was saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So obviously we're going to fail at times because we're sinners. Yet we must always really take our aim to please God. Otherwise, we'll discover eventually that he is passionate about the honor of his name. And the, the, the scriptures are, and I'll challenge any of our brothers just to go back and take a look at this. It's just, I think, overwhelming to look, especially both in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, how it's almost like God's name. He talks about his name as being powerful, as being a strong power, as being where his presence resides. He gives us the word. We've talked about that before. And so you might expect at certain times that God would say like, my power is my presence, or it's that my presence ought to be high and lifted up. And he speaks about his name as not just a great representation, but it's all of who he is. And so now we come to this third commandment, which says, don't empty that. Don't use the name in vain. And of course, I would say that sometimes the opposite, and this is where the devil, I think, does his, his work. The opposite of what is holy is not always profane. It's a cheapening of that which is holy. It is to remove its great value, to make it commonplace or trite or kitsch or totally to remove its great value. And in doing so, it's almost more destructive than what would be profanity because it takes, again, like to blaspheme is the worst kind of use of yeah. the mouth because what it does is it take that which is what ought to be high and lifted up of great value and prestige and power and respect and reverence and instead treats it as common and mundane. 
And so it's right, of course, for God, after talking about himself as the one true God, the one before which you should have no other representation, no other priority, no other manifestation, including images of himself. And then he says, you should not take my name in vain. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to read, uh, I actually want to read something out of Reform Dogmatics by Gerhardus Voss. So one one of the things that I think um, is a real positive development, obviously there's a lot of real positive developments in Reformed theology, but was a, a positive development that was somewhat novel in the history of the church, not entirely, but sort of novel, is a real concrete reflection on the names of God and what they tell us about God kind of according to his essence, right? So if you go all the way back to the the very beginning of this mega series that we're doing, we talked about the divine essence and we talked about essences and energies and all this different stuff. Go back and listen. But we don't, we don't have direct access to God's essence um, either experientially. And we don't have a lot in the Bible that describes God's essence in sort of straightforward terms. And even the things we do have that describe God's essence are accommodated things. So there's still creaturely language describing the essence of the creator. So we're, we're very limited, but I'm just going to read this here. This is the very first Vasa's systematic theology is set up in a series of questions and answers. Um, I don't know the history of why that is. It had something to do with how he did class. Um, it's almost kind of like a semi-scholastic disputation method. Um, he says, uh, this is the first question in chapter two of the, the first volume. He says, in what does the importance of the names of God lie? And he answers this by saying, in this, that God through them draws our attention to the most important attributes of his being. This being is so rich and comprehensive that we need to have some benchmarks in order to understand the rest. God's names are not empty sounds like the names of people, but they have meaning and contribute to our knowledge of God. So right off the bat, we have to understand that when God reveals something to us in the scripture, by way of, of a name, right? He uses many different names in the scripture. That it's saying something to us. It's a revelatory act that gives us a sort of a, um, almost like an idealized or a, a highlighted, emphasized bit of information. So in, in our current culture, we would think that a name is not, it's not really all that descriptive. Like Voss is saying, it, it's, it's almost like an empty sound. My name could be anything. It could literally be anything, and it would change almost nothing about who I am. Um, it's part of why, in some states, changing your name is literally as easy as going before a judge and saying, my name is this now. Um, we might have a little bit more understanding if we think about a signature, which is not just the collection of letters, but the particular way that that signature uh, is written, and it communicates and it conveys almost a sense of personal presence when we sign a document. It's a commitment. It's an oath. Um, it demonstrates you were present or like a notary. That's closer to what the Bible uses in, in names in general. And then when reference to God, it goes even higher than that. And you can right. see this. I don't have the passage right in front of me, but there's a passage. I think it's in the book of Numbers. Actually, Chad Bird was writing about it on Twitter the other day, which is why I'm thinking about it. Um, it talks about how the angel of the Lord had the name in him. Right. And so, and, and what it's saying, what that passage is teaching is that the angel of the Lord is not just called the angel of the Lord. And that's not even the, the, of the Lord. That's not the reference in the name. The angel of the Lord is Yahweh because the name of Yahweh is in the angel of the Lord. It's a metaphysical statement of the deity of this entity that, that is called the angel of the Lord. Chad would, Chad would smack me for saying angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, right? <laughs> 
Not um, like Yahweh. And I don't want Chad to smack me. That dude has some pretty massive forearms. He's got guns. Um, so we have to recognize that although making a joke with someone's name in our culture is is actually probably somewhat more offensive than uh, other ways of joking about a person, it would be nowhere near as offensive um, in in terms of like concept as misusing or misattributing the name of the Lord, because you're not just misattributing the name of the Lord, you're misattributing the very essence of God when you misuse his name. You're, you're making his name empty when you're actually referring to the very core identity of what and who God is, right? And of course, divine simplicity comes in and all this stuff. So that's the first place we have to land is that a name, the name of the Lord is not just an empty signifier or a, um, it's not a name tag that could say anything. It conveys real at, attributable information and I mean, in reference to attributes, it conveys this. So here's just an example of what um, what Voss does with this. And honestly, some of these, I think the etymology that he's working on may not be accurate. So so take it for what it's worth. But so the second question is, what is the meaning of the name Elohim? And the quotation here says, he is the one to be feared or the one who is full of majesty. The ending im is a plural ending. The singular is Eloa and appears first in the later books of the Bible as a poetic form. The plural ending does not point to an early polytheistic conception, but signifies the plentitude of power and majesty there is in God. So the, the, I would I would quibble a little bit about what the plurality of this word means and how how it might refer to the Trinity. I think Voss specifically denies that it has any Trinitarian implications. But he's saying like the word Elohim in the Bible, which is by far the most common common name of God in the Bible, uh, it, it communicates his power, his sovereignty, his his majesty. All of that is communicated in this this short little phrasing that is, you know, is four or five letters in Hebrew communicates all of that. So now when we take the name of God. And we're not just talking about the Hebrew names of God. We're taking the words in our language that we use to refer to God. We take them and we empty them of their meaning and we use them in an irreverent way. We're literally basically making it so we are communicating that we believe God is a vanity. He's an idol, right? That goes back right. to that vanity thing last week. We're, we're emptying God's name of its power, of its dignity. And we're communicating that in some sense in that moment, God is a vanity to us. And that's a big deal. Yeah, it is. I think it's helpful to return actually to the text you're referring to. So that's Exodus 23. And let me read a couple of verses that surround that particular snippet, which you just gave us. I think this is illustrative and instructive based on what you were just saying. So beginning of verse 20, behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgressions since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. And finally, verse 25, but you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. So here, doesn't this sound in some ways like a recapitulation 
of some of these 10 words we've been talking yeah. about, we see like the direct connection between worship of God and the blessing of the curse that it co- corresponds to the proper kind of worship and that all of God is represented in his name, which, which you were really driving at, I think, like remarkably well. This idea that like there is a great breadth and scope in this particular commandment, there's a comprehensiveness. By the name of the Lord our God, we're signifying God himself as he is made known to us, including everything through which he has been pleased to reveal himself, which is his word, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his works. So the name of God stands for his very nature and being. So, and in fact, like sometimes I'll go this far. Sometimes like the name of God, like just Yahweh is really should be taken for the entire system of divine truth. Yeah. That's like Micah four, right? We will walk in the name of the Lord, our God in that way of truth and worship that he has appointed. And then again, coming to Jesus saying, I desire worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. All of that is like distilled down. Actually, that's an unfair way of saying it. It's like, I'm going to say something like that seems nonsensical and oxymoronic. Like it's distilled up into who God is, right? Like he's great and big in his name. And so when we're talking about God's name, it's not just like, I think, we live among people of unclean lips. And part of our uncleanliness in our lips is that are the people around us somehow have this compulsion to use God's name for all kinds of reasons, either to like invoke promises or commitment or an expression or expletives. And that should be a sign to us that there's something special about God's name. And the temptation again is not again, this sense of being profane with it so much as it's to take it and to make it common and cheap. Yeah. So God comes and corrects us from the very beginning to say, don't do that. Yeah. Like my name ought to always and every way be hallowed and it has to be hallowed in both intent and in content. Yeah. And, and if I was to say to somebody um, who is coming to the party and they were to say, Jesse is coming to the party, assuming I know which Jesse they're talking about, <laughs> they're making a statement about who that, that name there's a linguistic thing going on there that is, I think, close to, or it's a good analog for what's happening in this passage, right? When they say Jesse is coming to the party, when you come to the party, you you don't joke around, first of all, when you come to a party. But when Jesse comes to the party, um, his presence is coming to that party. So the statement Jesse is coming to the party is a statement about Jesse's presence will be at the party. And in a certain sense, Jesse brings his entire person with him to the party. So we like to think, I think in the West, particularly, we think about like compartmentalizing and, you know, there's like Jesse at work and there's Jesse at church and there's Jesse at home. And like, there's these different, these different Jesse's, but that's not true. Right. So I work in the medical world. There's a lot of talk about how like doctors need to not bring their personal lives in. And I'll, I'll often have the conversation with a patient who had some sort of rough experience with the doctor. Hey, doctors are people too. Like, they they may have they may have got terrible news that morning and right. yet they still had to come and do your surgery and so yes they should be professionals but if they were not super happy or polite with you there might there might be an explanation besides just they're a jerk which is where people's minds usually go to now if you take that that principle that when we come to the party, when we come to our work, when we come to whatever it is, we are bringing with us in some sense, everything we are. Take that to God now, who is simple, right. that God's simplicity comes to bear on this. God, anywhere God is present, which of, of course is everywhere that God is present. And anywhere God is present, he's present with his full being at every moment in every way and in full potency. 
So when we talk about God's name being in the angel, and particularly here, he, they will not forgive your transgression because my name is in him. It's saying exactly. my full presence and authority and power and potency and everything that I am is in this angel, which the yes. only way that could be true is if the angel is in fact God. So now, again, when we now take that word, that collection of characters or sounds that is associated with God, which the Bible uses in various ways to reveal God's being and to point us to him, we empty that of its meaning. We really are attempting, obviously, as a creature, we can't really do this, but we're attempting to vacate his presence. We're attempting to vacate his existence out of that situation. And so, like, right. I, I'm going to say something here not to be flippant. Because I've actually heard Christians do this, and I really have a problem with it. I've heard Christians who would suggest that rather than using uh, God's name in vain, that we should use the religious terminology of other other religions a as substitutes. And the, the, the reason that that's sort of funny is because nobody does it, right? I'm going to say this as a demonstration. I'm not advocating that we do this as a regular practice. But if I if I was at the store... And, um, I, you know, the, the thing I wanted to buy was out and I went, oh, for Buddha's sake, like that would be humorous. People would laugh at that because that's just not something we do. Or if I use the name, if I use Muhammad's name or Allah or, um, by Zeus or by Odin's beard, you know, whatever it might be, that is, we might do that. We do that explicitly to mock and, and defame the name of whatever deity religious figure we might be referencing. And the, the world, when they do that, is doing the same thing. The difference is, and this is this is a sort of presuppositional apologetics point that we might want to make more of in the future. When they do that, they pick the name of Yahweh or the name of Jesus out of a sense of knowledge, right? Romans 1 style, a sense of knowledge that that name is real, that that name is true, and that the, the being and the entity who stands behind that name is real. Right? This is them suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, but you can't suppress something that you don't have some sort of intrinsic knowledge of. So, so we, we I want to talk about so the application for Christians, but in order for us to get to what Christians need to do with this, we have to spend some time talking about the sort of the mechanics of blasphemy, the mechanics of taking the Lord's name in vain, is it really is an, a semi-conscious attempt to vacate God's name of any being or essence or power. Right. And that that's the essence of blasphemy. You make light, you trivialize something that is not worthy of being trivialized. With God, we're doing the opposite of what we're to do. We're supposed to make his name great. And instead we make his name the butt of a joke or a, an expletive or a meaningless set of sounds that we express when we're frustrated. That's a That's a pretty significant thing. And that's critical to understand, isn't it? Because what we're trying, I think, to hammer on here is this idea that it's not coming against it. Like, so uh, criticizing the name of God or criticizing who he is, because that would be at the same time, at least acknowledging him. This right. is far worse. It's actually trying to remove him altogether. And to, again, to make it like treat cheap and trite. Yeah. So that in some ways, like this is how we know that this is some like weird apologetics right here. This is how we know uh, that God is real is because like there is this almost innate, actually, I guess it is innate desire to take that name and to abuse it, yeah. to make it this kind of commonplace thing to, to bring like, why is it that all cultures around the world somehow want to use like the name of God or Jesus in these flippant ways? Yeah. You don't find that with respect. And to your point, if in your example with using Buddha, 
the part of the reason why it's funny is because we know it's derivative because right. we know we're substituting it for the thing we really want to say or the thing we really mean, Yeah, which is that we want to take God's name in vain. So like the problem is God's name is taken in vain by us when we use it without due consideration and reverence, which is this really high and lofty standard, which by the way, is what all the 10 words require. So even there, we find that there's grace of God in us because the argument is, can we take it with enough consideration and reverence? Uh, probably not. And so even there, we find that we're covered over in our own sinfulness, but that we ought to always have this repentance on our own lips, that we've used God's name flippantly, or that we've sung it without due consideration. But, and I'll bring this up one more time before we like transition to some of that more meaningful application, so to speak, is that to me, the one time of year in the Western calendar in particular, where God's name gets used the most in vain is of course Christmas time, mm -hmm. because this idea of like having these quote unquote carols, which are speaking of like the virgin birth and the work of God in Christ and the incarnation are sung without due consideration and reverence. In fact, they're made cheap because we sometimes we run to them for nostalgic or emotional reasons because they make us feel good and right. comfortable. And because it's what we do this time of year, because what it means to be jolly and full of joy and to participate in Christmas as a season. And instead, we're, again, making God's name cheap at the expense of our own comfort and celebration and eggnog and gifts and stockings and Santa. So, again, there's a proper way to worship. And God is guiding us into that proper way by saying, don't use my name in vain. So let, yeah. let's talk because we're, I mean, again, did we say we're going to do four hours in this episode? I forgot. Did we say yeah. that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. This is part part one of ten from this so, topic. Then we're so. totally on schedule, but nonetheless, let, let's talk about like some more explicit kind of application because I know you and I kind of talked about. There's some things we want to hit on with that. Yeah, and, and so I, I want to. One of the things that I don't know that we did a great job of with the first and second commandment. No, we did fine. We, we, I'm sure we did fine. But I, I'm just trying to be humble, Jesse. Can't you just let me be humble? <laughs> oh um, man. Oh man! No, I, I actually really don't think we did a, a stellar job of this. Is the 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 commandments are not just prohibitions, right? Yes. And yes. and this is not something that's distinctly reformed. Um, I think the entire history of the church has recognized that if we're commanded not to do something, that there is a sort of reflection of that in an obligation of some sort. If we're commanded, not, and and we talked about this, but we didn't make it explicit. If we're commanded to worship. God alone, uh, or to not worship other things, then that is inversely a, a command to worship God alone. If we're commanded to not worship in God in ways that God is not commanded, then we're commanded to worship in all of the ways that God has commanded. So the second commandment isn't just about the wrong ways to worship. It also obligates us to worship in the right ways that God has commanded. And the third commandment in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth are no different. And so I want to read from the Westminster. I'm going to read from the larger just because we're not going to have time to talk about all these. So I want to make sure that they're kind of out there. But this is what it says is the, this is question 112. What is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatever else there is whereby he is makes himself known, be holily, that's a hard word to say, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing, by a holy profession and answerable conversation, 
to the glory of God and to the good of ourselves and others. So boil all that 16th century speech down, 15th century speech down. It's a positive command to use God's name yes, and, and to exactly. use God's name and all of that, all of those associated things, anything that he makes himself known by, which the, the, the continental tradition explicitly associates that with us, right? We're the image of God. So when we, when we bear God's name as image bearers, when we bear his image, and then even more so when we bear his name as Christians, when we do that poorly, because we're sinners, that's actually a, an intrinsic violation of this commandment. So I wanted to get that out there because we're, I think we're going to circle around more about the prohibition in a particular situation that I know Jesse and I have talked about, we actually really struggle with, and we're struggling, we're wrestling with how do we even think about this and what do we do and what does it really mean in our life? We're not going to have time to talk about all the positive ways that we are to fulfill the positive command right. in this, but I wanted to get out there because it's important. I heard it said one time, um, the, the way to stop sinning, and maybe this was a little bit Wesleyan, but the way you stop sinning is not to focus on what you can't do, but to actually focus on what you do or what you should do. Um, there's some wisdom in that, right? Not that we can stop sinning, but if all I'm thinking about is how I how I shouldn't be lazy, how I shouldn't waste time, how I shouldn't be a glutton, that's actually probably going to lead me to, to more lazy and gluttonous behavior. If, I, if all I think about is how I shouldn't eat that extra donut, it's probably just going to drive me to go get that extra donut. Um, if instead I think about I should drink some extra water, I should take care of my body, doing the good things, that's more likely to displace the sinful tendencies, just practically speaking. So those, those positive commands are important for us to at least talk about and think about. But the situation that Jesse and I, this is what sparked our conversation last week afterwards. Um, you can clarify it more, but Jesse made a really interesting observation that when we draw a false image of God, whether it's in our minds or whether it is on paper or we make a little statue or whatever it is we do, we're kind of doing the same thing in visual form that we do when we vacate God's name of its meaning. Right. So we're, we're, we're attaching God's visual countenance, which is already an incoherent thing to say, but we're attaching his visual countenance to a vanity, to an emptiness. And when we take God's name and we associate it to something vain, we're doing the same thing in reference to his revelation rather than to this to his not revelation in, in image form. And so the way that this is most common for most of us, and again, this... If you hear judgment in our statement, realize that we're really reflecting more on a shortfalling in our own lives and patterns sure. of speech. But if you are feeling convicted of this, then you, I, I would encourage you to think a little bit about that because it probably is the conviction of the Holy Spirit for most of us on this topic. And this is this is what's called a minced oath, or a you know, a, when when I'm gonna I'm gonna say a couple of them, not to use them in vain, but just for demonstration purposes. The really common one up in New Hampshire. Tell me if you've heard this one, Jesse. People say Jesus Crow. <laughs> yeah, I've yep. heard that. So Jesus Crow or oh my gosh. You'll hear if you go back in our back catalog, Jesse and I say gosh all the time. That's true. Right? Gosh darn it. Like, well, what do you think that came from? What what else starts with a G and a D? So these these things that we say, just because we're using a different arrangement of word of letters and sounds doesn't change the intention of our heart. And so these, these are incredibly hard. I, I don't even know what, I, I don't even, I can't even conceptualize what language is, what kind of explanation, like, like what kind of, not expletive like profanity, but like what kind of uh, exclamation can I even say that doesn't somehow fall into this category? What do you think? Have you thought of it? We, we were kind of saying it's like, what is there that you could even say that isn't a minced oath when it's used in this fashion? 
Right, which which is in some ways convicting in its own right, because what we're saying is we got to radicalize our language in a positive way, don't we? Like mm-hmm. that, what this commands us to do is to pull so far away from any kind of derivative that we avoid it altogether. My pastor was preaching on this recently, and he gave a, a wonderful example. He talked about in his own life how once the Lord arrested him as a teenager, he happened to be working a summer job at a factory next to another Christian, and he was using this kind of Christian whitewashed language where you just substitute. So you're trying yeah. to express, like you said, some expletive, some sense of awe, whatever it is, but you just substitute words. And the gentleman next to him, who was a Christian, said to him finally, after I suppose many times of hearing this kind of replacement language, he just said to him, why don't you just say what you mean? Yeah. And yeah. I think that was the great challenge. He gave that to us as under his care. And I've really been thinking about that a lot. I think the call here is to avoid altogether. I, I don't know. Just say, wow. Say, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? like We have to think about that. As we've been saying about the idea that like, if, if there's anybody listening who's like, well, it makes complete sense to me that let's say I want to avoid for practical and we would argue for biblical pur- purposes, images of Christ. This is the equivalent with language. Yeah. All we're doing is just substituting it out. We're just trying to make it sound more clean. But it's clear to everybody around us what we're actually trying to say, because we're actually instead taking the cultural's the cultural's misappropriation of God's name yeah. and pulling the same expression in, but just swapping out the language. But for them, they're translating it in the same way, because right. that's actually what we mean to do, isn't it? Like, I mean, I know that nobody is coming to it saying, like, listen, I'm not using those words, but your meaning is the same. Yeah. And that's the problem. The standard is really, really high with respect to God's name. So I think you're right on about that. And the problem with this is we have so much regular words in our language that are going to be hard for us to remove because they're habitual. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And I think we got to radicalize. And by that, I mean, it's kind of like a, it's an elimination diet. You got to pull it out, get rid of it and stop using it. And I'm certainly the first to admit that I'm guilty of this. I will use the word holy as an expression, yeah. right? Yeah. I'll use substitutes that are seem very innocent uh, because, again, those are also like common expressions that have been so whitewashed that other people will receive them as totally appropriate and normative and seemingly innocuous. Yeah. But what God is saying here, as you've pointed out, is that none of these things that can be traced back to the meaning that you actually mean to imply are innocuous or innocent. You will be held guilty for taking the Lord's name in vain, even if you use that derivatively, because there's just a clean line. You can trace it back to what you're actually trying to say. That's like a great challenge. Yeah. But I think it's it's a challenge that's worth processing that we should all just step back and say, like we've 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 tried to bring about with a conversation about images. Is it possible this is at best unwise? And at worst, worst, it is the kind of thing which God is saying you need to avoid and stop. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to lay down a little bit of law and then hopefully round this out with a a helping of gospel. Right. So that's great. As you and I talked about this last week after the show, I really do wish that we had recorded, recorded it and been able to release (laughs) it as like a Patreon exclusive for everyone because we don't have Patreon exclusives. Um, There's no way to stop this. And that yeah, sounds right. really, really discouraging, right? There's right. there's no way to stop it. And, and the reason I was so frustrated about this, and it's been such a struggle for me, is because I'm trying to figure out how do I how do I use an expression to communicate what is coming out of my heart in a way that is not sinful. And here's where the law comes in. You can't, because what's coming out of your heart 
And the reason those expressions come out of your mouth is because it's a sinful impulse coming out of your heart, right? We, we don't say, quote, oh my gosh, when, uh, when we're, we're, you know, um, looking at a beautiful sunset, right? We, I mean, we might, that's actually probably more of a conditioning thing. It actually would be appropriate if you see a beautiful sunset, say, oh my God, like an actual statement of praise for the Lord who made the sunset. That would actually be an appropriate time to use God's name. We are conditioned to not say God and say gosh, except in very specific specific circumstances. But this is the this is the passage I kept coming back to as I reflected on this. I'm going to read a little bit more context. Everybody's heard this is Matthew 12, uh, 35, uh, 30, part of 34. Uh, it says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We hear that. It's kind of proverbial. But I want to read the whole section here. Uh, this is starting in 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they right. speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Now, that's the law, right? The reason we say things, whether we're actually taking God's uh, explicit name in vain or whether we're just substituting something else instead, which almost in some ways, like your example, just say what you mean, almost is actually like another layer of insult yes, on top it of it to, to think that we can just we can just switch out. A, a D for an SH and we're somehow fooling God into thinking that it's not taking his name in vain. Right. The reason that we can't stop is because we're evil, wicked sinners. Right. And this is the gospel. It's not, uh, if it was up to us to make the tree good and therefore make its fruit good, what we're trying to do with these minced oaths or whatever it might be, maybe it's something else that's related to this. What we're trying to do is we're trying to make the fruit good without making the tree good. We're trying to find some sort of sanitized, safe, appropriate expression to express a sinful internal uh, state of emotion or being or whatever. We're trying to bring that out and in the bringing of it out and converting it into something that is is not explicitly a swear word or explicitly uh, God's name. We're trying to sanitize that rotten fruit and make it palatable. And it's not fooling anyone around you. It really isn't. Uh, it's probably not fooling you if you're really honest with yourself about it. You probably, if you think about it, feel a twinge of guilt each time you do it. I know I do, especially since I've started reflecting on this uh, myself. But here's the thing. Just like we said at the end of the last episode, if it was up to us to bring proper worship to God, if it was up to us to worship according to his precepts, to to keep all of his commands for worship pure and entire, right? That's the That's the positive command in the second commandment is to receive and observe all of God's uh, God's worship and ordinances, uh, pure and entire. If it was up to us, we could never do it. Right. In the same way, we cannot fix ourselves. We can't. So if you're trying to just find a different word, find a different expression that somehow is into sin, it's not going to work. You got to, the heart has to be fixed. There has to be sanctification. And only the spirit does that. And he does it through faith. It's not that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not that we have to pound ourselves to death with the law and somehow that's going to conform us in his image. The Holy Spirit conforms us to his image through faith. And out of that good treasure, the, the good words will flow. So just like when we were talking about superstition in the first commandment, 
I actually, you know, I, I kind of made the joke that maybe I should just say what I mean when I walk a patient out of my office and say, I hope things go well for you instead of saying good luck um, or best wishes, right? Those are just meaningless sentences or superstitions. Uh, if I, instead of, um, instead of saying, quote, oh my gosh, or typing, quote, OMG, whatever it might be, if instead I actually took a minute to think about, is this a statement that I should be saying? Is this even a is this even a a thought that should be externalized? Probably not. If if you have right. to think about it, then probably not. And then now taking that and saying, okay, now I know that that thought was wicked. I have to pray that the Holy Spirit will sanctify me and that these wicked thoughts will no longer occur. That is going to change things. The Holy Spirit is going to use that to sanctify you. I promise you. I promise you he will because he's promised that he will. So people are going to have progress. They're going to have, have setbacks. That's part of the Christian life. But overall, the Spirit has promised to sanctify his people. So when we have those moments where we we think, a, a, and I say dirty thought, I'm not talking about sexual dirty thoughts. We'll, we'll get to that stuff when we get to the seventh commandment. But when we have a wicked thought and we want to now express that wicked thought verbally and we we try to express it in a sanitized way, if we are aware of those things and diligent to mortify sin, and trust the Holy Spirit to empower us to, you know, this is the Westminster Catechism's definition of sanctification. The Holy Spirit renews us in the image of God in the whole man, and he enables right. us to live unto righteousness and to die unto sin more and more, right? It's a progress. It's a, it's a, it's a process that happens over time, but the Holy Spirit does it. That's powerful. That's, that's the gospel as is related to sanctification. And we're not talking about justification, but this is a law that we can't bear. We just can't do it. We can't do it. And we have to get past this idea that somehow we can conform our external behaviors and think that's going to transform our internal desires. It's never going to work. It's never going to work. And the gospel, not only does it do, do all of that, which you just described, it allows us to use God's name with intimacy for its proper purpose and to be a great blessing to us. It, it, the commandment actually requires us to make mention of the name of God yeah. since he's given us so many and gracious discoveries in himself that are manifest in his name. It would actually be a form of like really vile contempt if we didn't take those great privileges and we had expressed no regard for those discoveries that he's made through the use of his name. So what the gospel allows us to do, a la Hebrews, is to come without fear into the throne room of God and address him by name. Yeah. So that we might receive healing. We might receive forgiveness. We might invoke the promises that he said that he would give to us by use of his name. And he's sworn by his name because there is nobody higher than God. Yeah. So it also means that for the Christian whom God has elected and saved and drawn onto himself, that you may use his name. He call, He says you ought to use his name. So in other words, this commandment isn't like, just don't say anything about God. Don't use his name. Instead, it is both and. It says, don't use it inappropriately, but instead, use it in its intended way. Use it in accordance with the intimacy that Jesus Christ has reserved and secured for us. And we all know this as people, because it, with my own name, and I was just talking to my lovely mother about this last week, you know, there's a tendency sometimes in my life when I meet somebody and I introduce myself for them to want to shorten my name to Jess yeah. right away. And for some reason, <laughs> I have a story just, about oh, this. <laughs> yeah, this bugs me. So, but there's if, if somebody whom I know, who I'm intimate with, who oh, I know loves me, when they say it that way, like if you called me that, I have no issue with that. And and I would actually see that as a form of great solidarity and strong relational and familial bond together. It's the same way with God's name, isn't it? It's amazing how 
the one person can use it flippantly. And God says that brings great punishment upon you. And the Christian whom God has said, when they use it reverently and lovingly in its proper context, is actually thing that pleases God, that he might be called by his name, by his children, because he has made us sons and daughters. That is a beautiful thing. That is both law and gospel. And it comes together actually in this third commandment and yeah. how we use his name. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because when I first started coming around, uh, I heard your family calling you Jess and thought that that was just the accepted nickname. Uh, and your sister actually came up to me probably, I think the first night and said, uh, Jesse doesn't like it when people who don't know him very well, call him by a nickname <laughs> like that. And honestly, I remember this. I've never told you about this. Maybe our friendship is over at this point, but I I remember thinking that was kind of dumb. Like, really? Like, you're going to be that obsessive that like you're going to. That's fair. But but it makes a lot more sense now. Like, like Mm -hmm. there is a there's a reality to how we name someone and how we call someone something um, that is significant. And and maybe I'll just we'll just close with this because we we were joking about the 10 hour new multi-part episode thing, but we're getting pretty close to that at this point. There is a certain instinctual revulsion that we have to jokes about God, particularly when they come from sources that we already disagree with. So I just, Joel Olstein is famous. He starts every sermon by saying something like, I'd like to start with something funny. And then he, right. he tells a joke, which homiletics aside, whatever, that's a good approach homiletically or not is, is not the point. Most of the time when we hear those jokes, they're the kind of like yuck, yuck, funny pun kinds of jokes. The website that I I went to to find an example was one about Jesus and Satan are in a computer coding competition and the computers crash and this, the devil is really upset. Jesus is cool as a cucumber. And when asked why, it's because Jesus saves. Right. Or like we could talk. We've talked about this before, like the weird kitschy Christian T-shirts. Right. Yep. The original old Navy was 12 men in a comp- carpenter in a boat. Like right. those we eat, we, we, they're either harm. We either think they're harmless or we kind of instinctively are like, that's just dumb. And I feel a little bit yucky about it. When one of our guys, people on kind of our, our side of the world are the reformed blogosphere or like the sort of lowercase reformed world make a joke. Um, we, we tend to overlook that. And so the example is, and I've used this example before. This was actually the first time I felt really convicted about this subject. Alistair Begg threw himself to the lions on this, and he is doing a sermon about the third commandment. And he said, how many times in my ministry have I used the joke of the little kid who thought the ending of the Lord's prayer said that the Lord's name was Harold? And, you know, right. everybody laughs when the little kid says, Harold, be your name. And he just said, how many times have I made that joke in my ministry career? Probably dozens, if not more. And, and But that's making light of the Lord's name. It's it's making light of his name, his attributes. It's making light of this beautiful prayer that the Lord has given us for our benefit and for edification. We could say the same thing. Actually, a listener to the show made a comment at one point, um, and I felt very convicted by it. I've been thinking about it. It's part of what led to this conversation um, in a broad sense. I made a joke at one point about coveting your beard. Right. Or we've made jokes when we record at, at uh, mom and dad's house and we're in dad's office about how we covet his book collection. Right. Uh, there's probably actually some truth and I'm not making a joke. There's probably some truth to the fact that I covet your beard and that we covet dad's book collection. Right. But we, we've made jokes about that very early on. We talked about the joke of like, if you get the center, the center cup in the communion <laughs> tray, that yes. there's somehow it's more holy. It is very easy for us to 
take the Lord's name in vain without even realizing it. And this is going to be, if we really want to get this right, brothers and sisters, loved ones, if we really want to get this right, it's going to require constant diligence and awareness. It requires us to be aware and thinking about and selecting every single word intentionally. And that may seem, and it is, it is an impossible standard to bear, but that's what God calls us to. And this is exactly what the last part of that passage says. For by your, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now, I know Christians go back and forth on what the day of judgment looks like for Christians and, and whether we're going to have to have some sort of like courtroom scene where God brings all of our sins out. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into that. There's different differences of opinions. Good Christians disagree on exactly what that looks like. But this principle that even the careless words, and especially the careless words that we speak, those are the ones that will condemn us or justify us. No one right. can be justified by that. No one can bear that standard. We didn't even talk, we could we didn't even get to James and the tongue is a fire and, and cursing out of, you know, we didn't even get there. But this is just something that's going to require constant diligence if we want to succeed. And of course, we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It requires prayer. All of that is it need, doesn't need to be said. But this is a this is something that I think I am truly convinced that a community of Christians who are actually serious about God's law and about holiness without, without me making statements at this point about what that seriousness looks like, but who is actually serious about God's law and obeying God's law, that is countercultural. It's countercultural in the broader culture, especially, but it's kind of countercultural in the church too. Yeah, for sure. And isn't it ironic that in some ways what we're talking about is just removing certain words and that that itself can be a great statement about how we revere who God is. Yeah. So it's a bit like saying, listen, we understand that the great privilege of those who are close to God is the ability to bear on their lips his name properly and that we should just forsake all kind of flippant usage. And this is hard. The standard is really hard. And so because of that, it should lead us to give even more praise to the God man who we understand was like us, but without sin, which means he did it perfectly. Yeah. We recognize how hard that is. Mm -hmm. We ought to worship our bro our first brother, who we understand covers us by his own blood and grants to us great forgiveness. And then the blessing of his complete obedience in this particular way. And so we have great hope yeah. that we have this great high priest, who even now is covering over what is imperfect use of his name. Even as we try to do so perfectly, that is a great blessing. And by the way, you want to call me Jess? I'm totally <laughs> fine with that because here's the thing that is reserved for me, for those whom I love and for those in whom I have deep relationship with. And if that's true in this really temporal kind of insignificant way of you and me, then how much more is it true of God himself? Right? Yeah. yeah. Amen. Amen. That's what we're saying. So I hope that people are understanding that we sometimes say this. And I think that people think like for like the, the kind of like, podcast where it's two dudes talking that this is what you're supposed to say, but we're really on this journey. We're on a journey of what it means to understand theology, reform theology, but even above and beyond those things to understand what it means to worship God properly. I have not done any or all of these, th all of these things particularly well. I'll, I'll admit that. Yeah. And so when we talk about this stuff, we're as much in the process and in the midst of it as we are expounding it as we just converse. That's the whole reason we started this thing to way back like 336 episodes, I almost said 370 episodes, 336 <laughs> episodes ago. So 
we're not, we are advocates, but not champions, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so we're just finding our way. And part of that, I I like to think is the maturity of God pushing us deeper into these 10 words so that we actually spend some time meditating on what they actually mean and how they're actually put into practice. If that means that we just need to get rid of this language and find other ways and ask for God to help us, so be it. But I think I'd like to think that that's what it means to grow in maturity. So that's where we're at. You can take it or leave it. <laughs> that was strangely that's, an adversarial yeah, way to end well, the show. <laughs> only, only because, yes, yeah, it was a little bit combative. Only because, like, I'm, I'm sure there are people that sometimes hear us talk and yeah. they think that we come across as like this, like, really highbrow, high minded. That's not the way I intend it. The way that I'm processing it is the way that I'm like preaching to myself. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I walk away from these episodes, and don't think, man, we nailed that. Aren't we really good? People are going to listen to this. <laughs> yeah. So moved by what we said. I walk away, and it becomes my devotion and meditation as I look at the scriptures. Then throughout the week, and I think, man, I just fall, fall, I fall far short of the glory of God. Yeah. And so, what comes around right alongside that that sharp edge? of this law is that lovely, comforting, bomb-like gospel that says Christ has done it all. He's done all the verbs. It doesn't remove from me the responsibility and accountability then to try to apply what he's teaching me, but it does give me some comfort that I'm in this like everybody else. It just so happens that we broadcast our conversations on the internet. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you don't like it, you can leave it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since we are already well past the arbitrary time that we make up every week, uh, we will wrap it up uh, again. Thank you to everyone who supports the show in the various ways you do. Yes. You can join the telegram chat. If you'd like, I did pare down the topics a little bit, so it might be a little bit less intimidating when you jump in there. You can join it at uh, t.me slash reform brotherhood. If you don't have telegram, it'll, uh, it'll walk you through how to get it. And if you do have telegram, it should jump you straight into the channel. Uh, make sure you say hello and we will be happy to have you there. And Jesse until next time, honor everyone. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got, I got, I got ahead of that somehow. How'd you do it? Let's do it again. Do it again. Go ahead. Okay. One one more time. This is, this is real podcasting folks. Honor everyone. (laughs) Don't use the Lord's name in vain and love the brotherhood. (laughs) 